The following is a message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. More information about Parkview is available at www.parkviewchurch.org. All right, good morning. Welcome to Parkview. I'm Doug, one of the pastors here. It's great to have you here with us. And um, just want to piggyback a little bit off what Nick was saying about the traffic flow. Summer is a great time for us to kind of be navigating this. And I'm very grateful we have a good relationship with the Iowa City Police Department. So kind of as the summer goes and as fall comes, we're gonna be in good communication about keeping things flowing as well as we can. So I'm pretty optimistic about it and it's, I think, gonna go well. So but just follow your blue lines and your red lines yet and that'll help us out a bunch. So it's really good. So I hope your summer's off to a good start. Um, my daughter just graduated from high school and I've got another one right on her heels, ready to go. We sent her off to be a counselor to camp all summer. So there's my family's changing already, so not sure I'm liking that, um, but it's, uh, it is an exciting time of year, and um, yeah, I hope your summer's off to a good start. We've been studying Isaiah. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 56, um, is where we're going to start this morning. And it's an interesting uh, question we're going to ask ourselves this morning is, are we a people that God can use? Are we a people that God can show up in and through and do great things. And it's a good time of year to ask that. Tomorrow night is our annual meeting. This is kind of our fiscal year starts in June. And there are a lot of big things coming our way. The word multiply is going to mean a lot to this church over this next year. You've heard about the Southeast site. There's also some news we're going to talk about tomorrow night and next Sunday about North Liberty. So there are many things that we're just trusting God to do uh, through his church. But I think before we step into a year like this, it's good to look at a passage like we have today in Isaiah and to ask ourselves, are we a people that God can really use? Isaiah is a, uh, an amazing prophet. He uh, is the most, his writings are most quoted in the New Testament. He spoke many times about Jesus, even though he lived 700 years before the time of Christ. Some people even refer to Isaiah as the fifth gospel. He spoke so often of Jesus. And uh, there's two uh, things about Jesus that Isaiah taught us that when you lay them side by side, they're, they're completely astonishing. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah had uh, a vision of the pre-incarnate Jesus. Before Jesus came to earth, Isaiah saw Jesus on a throne, high and lifted up, and uh, he was in a temple, and just being in the presence of Jesus, the temple shook, and there was uh, there were angels singing around Jesus, saying, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah was so blown away, he fell on his face in worship. And so you have this very high view of God that you see throughout Isaiah's writings, that, that, that uh, the Lord is the one who created all things. We talked a couple weeks ago, that he can take the oceans and the waters of the planet and just measure them in the palm of his hand, that he can go like this and with the span of his hand, measure the universe. So the immensity of God, the glory of God, is a theme, a theme that you see running throughout Isaiah. But in chapter 7 of Isaiah, he gives us a prediction that when Jesus comes, he would be born of a virgin, and that he would be known as God with us. And so again, you take those two themes, and maybe if we've been around the Bible and we've been around church, those maybe can get... A commonplace for us, but those are astonishing themes that the God of all the universe, the creator of all we see, also wants to be the God who is with us. 
And so we're going to see that as being Isaiah's main theme to us today too. Something else uh, about a prophet is that you can't read a prophet very long without that prophet most likely rising up and challenging God's people. And so we're going to have a challenge today uh, from Isaiah. Isaiah had such a desire for God's people to see God for who he is and to worship him for who he is that as soon as God's people would start to drift, it was Isaiah's role to call those people back to God. And so that's called repentance. And so that's going to be, we're going to see that in the passage we're looking at today is Isaiah's call to us to repent. If we're going to be a people that God will really show up in and work through, that, that many of us may need to repent this morning. And again, if you'd have seen that, like, oh, we're going to talk about repentance today? Huh, not so sure I'm going to come today. But sometimes we get a negative connotation of repentance. But we're going to see that in God's kindness, he invites us to repentance. So I'm excited uh, to get into this passage with you today. I'm going to ask you to pray before we start, especially on this morning. So if you could pray. And if you could ask, God, would you please open my eyes and show me any areas in my life that you are calling me uh, to repent, that you are calling me to come back to you in a fresh way. And the passage is tricky this morning. If you could pray that I would speak clearly, that God would be the one that would teach us through his word today. I'd appreciate that. So pray for me to speak clearly and boldly from God's word. God, speak to your people. Thanks that you love us. Thanks that you are a God who is both great and gracious and that you want to walk closely with your people. In your great name we pray, amen. Just give us a quick update. Uh, Isaiah has 66 chapters in in this book that we're reading the first 39 chapters, he was speaking to his contemporaries and he was warning them of uh, the ways that they'd been moving away from God. They'd been worshiping idols. They'd been abusing the poor and they'd been stepping into sin. And he was telling them, if we don't repent, then God is going to judge us. His audience didn't listen to him and God did judge the people. The nation of Babylon invaded and took many of God's people into captive, into Babylon. So now you see from Isaiah chapter 40 to 66, his primary audience then is speaking to the next generation, to about people about 150 years later who are in captivity. And his main message to them is be comforted because God is going to bring you out of captivity. God is going to redeem and rescue his people. And so that in general is the theme from chapters 40 to 66. But what you're going to see today is today's passage is going to sound a little bit like chapters 1 to 39. He's going to be calling God's people to repent. And so it's confusing. But I think there's some cues in the text that tell us is that what Isaiah is doing is he's speaking to the people in exile before they come. And he's saying, now remember, these are the things that your forefathers did that led to your exile. In in a sense, it's like be warned and do not do the things that they did. And so there's a couple things he's going to point out as he calls them to repent. He's going to address uh, the fact that there was weak leadership, that the spiritual leaders in that day, uh, that when God's people walked away, the leadership was weak. And then also the people had walked from God. So he's going to address the leaders and the people. And so before we jump into the leaders section, don't take a five minute time out on me. Don't go like, okay, I'm not a pastor or a priest 
or a prophet, so this isn't for me. Just think of leadership as influence. And if you have people around you in the coming week, you have the opportunity to be a spiritual leader. You have the opportunity to lead them with your words and your life closer to God, okay? So don't just check out, although pastors, elders, uh, spiritual leaders do need this passage. All of us, really, if you have a relationship with God, have the opportunity to influence people for Christ. So uh, let's, let's look at what he says to the leaders. So it's Isaiah chapter 56, verse 9. He says, all you beasts in the field come to devour. All you beasts in the forest, his watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. So this is an indictment on the leaders. And actually, when I was studying to get ready for this message, I could not believe that now my dog Bubba has a life verse. Like he's got a theme verse. This is totally Bubba. He is a black lab. It'll be two, he'll be two in August, and he doesn't bark. Like actually, we don't mind that. It's nice that he doesn't bark. Um, he has a hard time getting our attention at night. One thing he used to do was shake his collar and the two tags would jingle together, but Lori fixed that by duct taping them together. So now he, he's kind of having a hard time communicating with us. And I tried pictures, it didn't work. He's the first lab we've had that loves to sleep on his back. Like at all times, that's his favorite posture. In fact, with his legs up. Like if you didn't know that, you'd probably come in and say, the Schillingers have a dead dog in their living room. Like he's just there and he's locked up in this, on his back position. So I said, man, this is so Bubba. This is describing what Bubba is like. And, and really, this is not a good description of a spiritual leader. So what you're seeing here is where most people would have a dog to be a watchdog, to bark if somebody is coming in. Um, these dogs, these leaders are not able to bark. They are barkless dogs. There's like hiring a watchman, a guard who can't see. That's, that's how ineffective these leaders are. One of the key roles of a spiritual leader is to warn God's people of things that are coming, things that could harm them, or, or to speak to God's people if he sees them beginning to veer off. Guys, I think we are drifting in our commitment to God. And so to be able to say those things is a key role for a spiritual leader. But these spiritual leaders are blind watchmen and they're barkless dogs. Not just that, it talks about their appetites, that they are basically living to satisfy themselves. They are greedy and they are failing to seek after God. They're not seeking God for their satisfaction. They're seeking other pursuits, and so they are very self-focused. And finally, the other description of them is that they had no understanding. So there's a failure to pursue God's word. Those are horrible descriptions of spiritual leaders. They're not aware that God's people could be drifting or that danger is coming. They're self-focused, looking to satisfy themselves, and they have no understanding of God's word. You know, thankfully, there are many good examples in the Bible of spiritual leadership. So again, we all have the potential to lead and influence people in our lives, parents or kids, grandparents, friends in your neighborhood, people at work. We all have the opportunity to lead. 
And so some good examples, for example, are Jesus, obviously Jesus in John 10, 11, where he says that he is the good shepherd, that he lays down his life for the sheep. He loved us sacrificially. He didn't selfishly pull back and pursue his own desires, but he moved toward us. I think of Ezra 7.10. Ezra was one of the leaders that led God's people out of exile and helped them rebuild and restore a community that worshiped God. Look Look what it says about Ezra. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. I love that order. He studied the word, he lived out the word, and then he taught the word. To be a spiritual leader, the word of God has got to be essential in your life, and not just that you know it and can talk it, but that you're living it out. I love that order. Study, live it out, and teach it. Paul's another great example of a spiritual leader, 2 Timothy 3.10, where he says to his, the one he's mentoring, to Timothy, he says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. There's another verse where Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's the essence of leadership, that you can say to the people around you, live like I live because, not because I want you to be like me, I want you to be like Jesus. I'm following Jesus, you guys follow me as I follow him. And so the Bible says, whoever aspires to be a spiritual leader, that is a noble ambition. That's, I think that's one of your highest callings that you say, God, could you use me to influence the people around me to really know who you are and to understand the life that you offer them? It's an amazing calling, but it's not something you can just wing it on your own. It's not something you can fake it and kind of bluff your way through it. Um, there, there's an authenticity. There's a, there's a need for God to be real in your life, for you to be a spiritual influencer. Let me just throw this out there. For example, um, I love this statement that spiritual leadership is really an overflow of what God is doing in your life. That is, God is, it's kind of what Paul said, imitate me because I'm imitating Christ. As God is real to you, as God is showing up in your life, as you are excited about God, that's going to just come out. There's there's definitely uh, room for your words, but it's your life that's going to put the reality of Jesus on display. One way you can kind of check that in your own life is just think of who are the spiritual leaders in your life? Who are the ones that, who are the people that God has used throughout your life to point you to God and who have inspired you to grow in your faith spiritually? I would imagine if we sat down and talked about those people, we might remember some things that they said We might remember a sermon they give or a Bible study they led or a verse they shared with you. For sure, that will be there. But I bet you equally, if not more, uh, in your memory of that person will be how they lived. How did they treat you? How did they love you? How were they patient with you? Um, Then you will notice things about them, like their joy or their passion, um, their humility, those, those are the things, again, to be a spiritual leader, you need kind of that whole package of you need the truth and you also need to live out that truth. And what was glaringly missing among God's people is they were not, they did not have leaders that would live in that way. They didn't understand God's word. They were living for themselves and they were not warning God's people of the dangers to come. And so as you would expect where there's weak leaders, you're going to see weak 
people. And so God addresses the people as well in Isaiah chapter 57. In Isaiah 57, again, Isaiah is reminding the people in exile, now don't be like your forefathers. Don't live like they lived. And then he describes them as spiritually weak people. And so as you read through Isaiah 57, uh, verse 3 down to, we're going to pick it up in verse 11, what you see are just many descriptions of false worship. Um, And what often happened for God's people in the Old Testament time is that in spite of the fact that here's this amazing God, the creator of all things, who loves them, who's offered a covenant relationship with him, that throughout their lives, God's people wandered from him, turned from him to other gods and to idols and other ways of worship. The, the, the usual trend was that these gods of the other peoples were known uh, for being fertility gods, that if you worshiped these gods, your crops would do well, your livestock would do well, and even your own family would do well. And so there'd be, instead of relying on the true creator of the universe, there'd be an easy pull toward worshiping the way the other countries, the other people, the other faiths uh, worshiped in that day. And so um, that's the description here. Isaiah 57 verses 11 to 13 is where we're going to pick it up, where God says this to his people, whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and you didn't remember me and you did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time? And do you not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let the collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. You know, Isaiah realized this, that God's people had a tendency to do this. In Isaiah 53, 6, he said, we are all like sheep. We have all gone astray. Like we, we just have a tendency in the human heart to just drift away from our God. It's like that song we sing, God, I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That's that's our posture. And so the role of a prophet is to come in and say, you guys, we are drifting from God. We have got to come back to him. And it's unfortunate, but you see, even in Romans 1, as a description of the human heart, it says that what we'll do is instead of worshiping the true God, who is great and very gracious, is that we will replace our worship of him basically with ourselves. We will worship what we want to worship. And we will, instead of worshiping the creator, we will worship created things. And you see in Romans chapter 1 a spiral of behaviors and activities that, that represent that. You see the same thing in Isaiah 57, that when he's describing the sins of the people, often as part of worshiping these fertility gods, there would be sexual sin. Uh, there would be just, an, just a total abandonment of God and his ways, of his um, ways for, for behavior and what's important, what's, what's appropriate. And even in some cases with the god Moloch, there would be child sacrifice involved. And what's, it's hard for us, but I think we look back on Old Testament times and we say, boy, those people were so archaic. Those people were not as sophisticated as we are. How could they do that? How could they set up false places of worship? How could they actually believe an idol would satisfy them? And how could they sacrifice their children uh, to these false God's. And to be honest, if you look in our culture today, we may not be doing the exact things, but there's some trends where you see us rejecting the God who is great and who is gracious. Um, Jeff mentioned these statistics, for example, if you want to talk about sexual sin, 
uh, in our world today. It's, it's rampant, but the things that have been especially alarming uh, to Jeff and I as we've been understanding and reading um, is some of the research that's come out recently about the impact of pornography on the American church today. That, that 75% of men in evangelical churches, that means Bible-teaching, gospel-believing churches, uh, are viewing pornography uh, in their lives today. And you look at that, and again, there's, there's, a, there's a pattern. What, what we saw in the Old Testament, we see today. And if sexual sin isn't, isn't your lure, there's going to be others. If it's the accumulation of stuff, or if it's the accumulation of, of applause, and how many people are following me and liking my posts, and, and it's so easy for our heart to just be turned from the worship of God. And, and so sometimes we'll trivialize that, but to God it's a big deal. He calls it, he, he, he equates it with uh, adultery. He calls it spiritual adultery, that we fail to love God above all other gods. And so to us, it's like, oh yeah, I just kind of drifted from God for a while. But then, then I came back. But from the heart of your God who made you and redeemed you and loved you, it crushes his heart. It's like you've committed adultery against, against your God. So that's, that's one description. He says the people have committed spiritual adultery. The other is that they're practicing a powerless spirituality. In, in spite of drifting from God, God says these people are still showing up to worship him. They use, he uses the word that they're crying out to me. That was a word to express prayer or that express praise to God, often, often in a corporate setting. So it could be that these people are still, in spite of the fact that they're worshiping these fertility gods and they've, they've abandoned God's ways and ethics, that they still have the gall to show up, whether it's to be seen or whether it's to just, well, I should do this maybe once a week to appease this God while I go and actually trust the other gods. And so uh, God looks at that and he says, I'm going to declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they won't profit you. That says, I see what you're doing, but it's not going to be any good for you. In fact, when hard times come, why don't you rely on your idols then? Why don't you rely on those things? Because they will just blow away. And his punchline at the end of chapter 57 is God says this, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And I'll admit, there's seasons where when you are drifting from God and when you are not, he's not your first love, things can feel pretty good. Like, it's like, I'm enjoying this. This is great. How's your life going? It's awesome. Is God in your life right now? No. Like, so uh, we're going to study Jonah later this year. There was a season in Jonah's life that he went exactly against what God asked. And things are going good for him. You know, he's sleeping on a ship, having a good old time. So that's a true statement. Sin can uh, have and be fun for a season, but there's going to be a continual, there's going to be an underlying in the depth of your soul. You were created by God to know God and to love God until you are in a right relationship with that creator. Your soul, your heart will be like a churning sea and there will be no peace for the wicked. And that lack of peace may not be revealed until, like Isaiah said, the winds blow until there's a hardship on your life, and you realize what in the world have I been thinking of trusting in these things instead of the great and the gracious God. And so that's, that's the conviction, that's the call to repentance. Now, we're gonna see in the second half of this message is 
the alternative. And it's, it's an amazing, it's a powerful alternative issued to us by the great and gracious God. And I want you to read it with me together. It's Isaiah 57, 15. Words are up here. Let's read it together. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart. It's awesome. What a great and amazing promise that, that God who lives in an eternal dwelling, the God who Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6, high and lifted up, who lives in a holy place, an eternal place, a place far beyond what life is like for us here now. That same God offers to come and live with us. He's great and he's gracious. He didn't just say, nope, you people have wandered from me once, that's enough. Next, bring in the next people, I'm done with those people. There, there's a gracious heart that God is inviting us back and he actually wants to live with live among uh, people like us. I know uh, my daughter's heading to college in the fall. Maybe the topic for a couple weeks is, who's your roommate? Who are you living with this year? Like, God? You know, it could be. Like, how to say, like, who's in your neighborhood? God? You know, like, who's living in your house this year? God? Like, what an amazing picture of the grace of God that in spite of his greatness, his eternality, his holiness, that he's willing to come and live with us and to be, to be with us. That's that's powerful, the one who is high and lifted up, uh, the one who calls us by name, the one who says, fear not, the one who does remember this with his hand, gives you his right hand, says, let's walk through this together. Let me be with you. And so um, that is an amazing promise from God. And so there were two descriptions of the kind of spirit that he looks for, the kind of life, the kind of heart that he looks for. And he used the words contrite, and lowly. So let's break those down a little bit because I, I, I don't know about you, but I want that. Like I want God to be with me. I want my life not to just show what I can do, but to can show what God can do through me. So those two words are key, contrite and lowly. Contrite literally means to be one who has had their spirit crushed by a divine act. One who has been crushed by a divine act. And again, I think that moment we realize what we have done, that we have offended or we have drifted from or we have rejected a God who is so great and who is so gracious and so loving to us. There's that moment of conviction or of being contrite where you're just crushed and you go, how? How could I have, do, how could I have done that? God, how, how could I have done that to you? And so that's the first step and that's, that's actually a gift from God. Again, when we think of repentance, we don't think positive things. I think of when I was a student on campus, the people used to come on the Pentecost and point at people and tell them they were going to hell and there was almost like a gleam in their eye, like they were glad that was happening, like that, that kind of confronting. And that's not the way God confronts. God exposes our sin and our rebellion against him, but he does it out of his kindness. Romans 2.4 says, or, you, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. That what God does is he convicts us when we are drifting from him and, and our response that he's looking for is that, is, is that contrite heart. God, how? How could I have done that? How could I have walked from you? It's not just feeling bad. It's not just kind of flippantly saying, oh God, I'm sorry, or just trying to do something to keep God on your side. It's 
It's being broken by what we have done against him. But then after that, God uses this phrase um, that he's also looking for those with a lowly spirit, okay? I know that's not a very appealing word this morning. Like, how would you like to describe yourself lowly? You know, like it doesn't even sound that cool. Like, or, or how would you want to describe your kids? I want my kids to be lowly, you know? So let's, let's break that down a little bit. Lowly does not mean uh, insecure. Uh, lowly means to be humble, to be surrendered, or to depend on God. And I love how C.S. Lewis puts it, that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking about yourself less. It means that you are so enamored with who God is and his greatness and his goodness that you don't think about what you could do unless you think about what could, God, what could I do if I was with God, if I was depending on God, if God was the one I was close to and he was working through me, then that's exciting. In fact, the most insecure times in your life are going to be when it's just you on your ability trying to wing it and make it through the hard times in your life, where you're going to be strong and courageous and at peace is that you, when you realize it's not about me, it's about him. I need to depend on such a great and such a gracious God. So God is looking for those uh, who are contrite and who are lowly of heart. Jesus uh, said to us in John fifteen five that he is the vine we are the branches. If anyone remains in him, abides in him, and he in us, then we will bear much fruit. But apart from him, we're just a stick, okay? We can do nothing. You, you break a branch off of the vine, it turns into a stick, okay? Put a sti I had a stick on my dashboard for a while just to remind me of my total inadequacy away from Christ. Like, that's, that's us. And so what God is calling us to is that dependent close relationship with him where we're depending on him. That's the description of a lowly spirit or a lowly heart. Second Chronicles 16.9, I would say, is one of my life verses where it says that the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth so that he can strongly support those whose hearts are completely his, completely surrendered to him. God loves to show up in the life of a person who is fully dependent on him. So I, I wrote this uh, sentence out that um, God in his kindness and in his grace offers to live with us. And so the only way we can forfeit God's grace is either by denying that we need it or by attempting to earn it. Honest, contrite acknowledgement of failure and humbly looking to Jesus for help and rescue is all that we need to be right with God. It's just squaring up what is blatantly obvious that, that he is great and gracious and that I am not and that I desperately need him. That's, that's when we set ourselves up to be used by God and to be known by God. And so that's the essence of the gospel right there. That's, that's the core of the Christian message is that Jesus died for our sins. He died to set us free for all those times we wander away from God and to take away the wrath of God at what we do when we wander from him. Jesus died to take away the penalty of that sin, but he also died to take away the power of that sin so we don't have to wander from God. We can instead stay close to God and trust God and obey God because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. The gospel is also that if we confess our sins, that, that Jesus will forgive us, he will cleanse us. And so that's the picture of being contrite, is coming before him when we've sinned and asking for forgiveness. 
and that whoever receives Christ, John 1.12 says, whoever receives Christ, whoever believes in his name, becomes a child of God. And what a great picture of the dependence that God is inviting us into, that he uh, wants to be our father, that we get to be his children, and that we get to reflect his greatness and his goodness as we cling to him. It's the essence of the gospel. And so what God promises to do then in his people, in us, when we come to him contrite, um, confessing our sin, when we come to him lowly, crying out our dependence on Christ, and what God promises to do then is to revive our spirit and to restore our hearts. Again, the promise is, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. Let's pray uh, for a little bit. And what I want you to do is just kind of square up right now. The Lord has just kind of laid these truths at your feet this morning. And I just want to give you a chance to just talk to him and say, Father, I, I have been drifting from you. Father, there are other loves in my life that I've put ahead of you. This is a great moment right now. He's looking for contrite and lowly hearts so that he can come and live with you. And again, this is going to be all because on the basis of what Jesus did for you on the cross, that you can even do this. But just, just right now, say, God, what? show me where in my life have I drifted from you? What am I loving more than you right now? And, and God, based on what Jesus has done for me, forgive me and I want to be your child. I want to follow you. I mentioned um, a little earlier specifically the sin of, of uh, pornography. And um, I didn't throw that out there lightly this morning. Um, you guys, in the last couple months, there's three or four stories that have just kind of emerged from our ranks where people have brought that sin into the light in a fresh way. And the description I'm hearing from these men, descriptions like this is so liberating. This has been so reviving. I feel like I have my life back, that I have repented of this sin and that I am fighting this sin now with the power of the gospel. And so I throw that out this morning. Is this a morning where, where you put a stake down in that area of your life and say, God, just, I, I'm contrite, I'm lowly, I need your help. Can, I confess this, bring this to the light, and set me free. And while you're in this posture of prayer, let me just read a couple of verses to you. This is... This is the other end, okay, so we've come before God, we've been contrite with our sins, we're asking him to move in our lives. Listen to this conversation between Moses and the Lord. This is right before God called Moses to lead his people into the promised land. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring this people up, but you have not let me know who you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and I have, you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, God, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God said to Moses, my presence 
will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said to God, if your presence will not go with me, then don't bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people in the face of the earth? God, may that conversation happen in hearts and in families all over this room and all over this church. God, may we say, God, God, we do not want to go into this next year of ministry and of serving you. We do not want to leave into this week of trying to be spiritual leaders and influence the people around us unless you will go with us. God, we need your presence with us because it is when you are in us that we are distinct from every other person on this planet. God, may we be a church that truly depends on you, goes with you. May we see you in our lives. May things happen in my life and in my family and in this church, God, that have no explanation in the next year other than that God was with him. May Parkview do things in this year that have no explanation other than God was with those people because they were contrite and they were lowly in spirit. God, all of this is to show our neighbors in this city and this world what an amazing God you are. So please do that. We love you. We praise you for your greatness and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Parkview's mission is to love God, love others, and serve the world. If you live in the Iowa City area, we invite you to join us in person for services every weekend. You can get service times and directions, download messages, and get news and information about Parkview Church by visiting www.parkviewchurch.org. You can also contact us by phone at 319-354-5580 or write to us at Parkview Church, 15 Foster Road, Iowa City, Iowa, 52245.